Thank you, Red Revive, for giving me the stamina to run not three, but 4.34 miles this morning. But who's counting? Thank you, Red Revive, for helping me recover quickly from a seven-hour yoga teacher training class that had me twisting and turning in new and highly unusual ways. Hi, everybody. I'm Connie Bowman from Happy Healthy You. Red Revive is the new sponsor of our Happy Healthy You podcast, and I'm so excited to say that I'm a believer. Finally, there's an easy, healthy way to get all of the energy I need and a lot of other great stuff, too, that I always intend to work into my diet but don't seem to be able to on a regular basis. Great stuff like beets and turmeric, and it's all plant-based and organic. Just click the link in the show notes to get 30% off Red Revive and enhance your energy today. So sex sells, they say, (laughs) they in quotes. So that's what we're going to talk about today, sort of. (laughs) Hi, everyone. This is Connie Bowman. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. And this is the second podcast in our new Shining the Light series. And as I've said before so many times, the mission of Happy Healthy You is to impart to you the beautiful life that we can all experience when we strive to live in balance in mind, body, and spirit. And what does this mean, really, in a practical sense? It means taking care of our physical selves, of course, eating well, eating all those good veggies and and, uh, fruits and exercising, meditating, and taking care of that place where our spirit can come in and have a soft place to, to really land. And it means nurturing a mind that is free of the excess baggage and negativity and, and all the stress and, and, things that ultimately lead to illness in our lives. So so that's what Happy Healthy You is all about. And according to our guest today, addictions of all kinds are really challenges that can block our connection with the divine, which ironically often is the reason or the motive behind the addictive behavior in the first place. Mikael Venish is a licensed graduate professional counselor. He has a PhD in philosophy from Catholic University and a master's in psychology. He's taught at Loyola University, Georgetown University, Barry University, and Morgan State. He is the author of numerous academic publications on a variety of subjects that I'm sure if we all read them, we would all be inspired to do our part to help change the world in our own ways. And that's how inspiring this guy is. We're so lucky to have him here to shine some light on the challenges. I was going to say problems, Mikael, Mm -hmm. but I am going to say challenges of addiction. Thank you so much for helping us see addiction with new eyes or maybe with a little bit more light. Thank you for having me. I'm interested in this. I was just out in Arizona for a couple of glorious weeks in the sunshine. And while I was there, my husband was sick. Long story. (laughs) So we weren't doing a whole lot. We were watching TV. Mm -hmm. And this documentary came on about the the problem of heroin addiction. And I I know we're going to talk about sex addiction a little bit more in depth, but heroin addiction. and, And the percentages were just staggering. The number of people especially young people in this country that are, are suffering. So this is a really big problem. So I'm glad you're on it. Yeah. And as far as heroin is concerned, there was a report just yesterday on the radio uh, at the um, some high-level public safety official in Northern Virginia is making a concerted effort to bring general awareness to the fact that this is a huge epidemic problem. I don't know the statistics on... Uh, 
the various addictions. But methamphetamine addiction has been a problem across the rural landscape of the United States for yeah. a long time. Yeah. It's ravaged many rural communities. Heroin has made a comeback, apparently because it's quite inexpensive, mm -hmm. and especially compared to prescription painkillers, which costs quite a lot of money on the street. So yeah, it, uh, substance addiction in general continues to be a large problem in our society and is getting worse on the whole, yeah. not better, as a public health concern. Yeah, and well, so today, before our podcast, I took this hot yoga class. <laughs> I have to digress because it's all it all just comes together for me somehow right before I do this interview. You know, I did my research and everything. But while I was in Shavasana, which is like the meditative thing, and I had this thought come through, and maybe you can help me articulate about addiction. And I wasn't really thinking about it. It just mm -hmm. kind of came through. Is it possible that addiction is is something that – you're a philosopher, so you'll mm -hmm. like this <laughs> – is something that uh, we create – in, in our minds to to ground us in our physical body and because we are so afraid of death and because of the temporal nature of, of life and the fear of that. Do you think addiction could be part of that? That was just a thought that came Yeah, <laughs> I think that that's part of what's going on, but I really think it's sort of more basic and more general than that. See, uh, addiction, to use an old-fashioned religious term, uh, it's a form of enslavement. Right. It's a form of enslavement to a desire. We're obsessed by the desire, and we are compelled to act in a way that will help us secure what that desire involves. And that doesn't have to be physical. You know, you can be addicted to fame. Mm -hmm. um, you can be addicted to uh, power. Um you can be addicted to all kinds of things that aren't tangibly. But what they have in common, whether it's heroin or whether it's popularity, uh, is that um, it satisfies an inordinate desire we have to feel good. And um, the more intense the desire is and the less control you have, over its place in your heart, um, the more unbalanced are you going to become mentally and the more uh, pursuing that desire will take over control of your life. Now, you talk about in your writing, there are two different types of addiction, substance and process addiction. So yes. a substance would be like a drug, alcohol, process would be like sex, Gambling is, is sex addiction. Uh, a very well-known one, it's, and it's one that has recently received official sanction uh, as being an addiction by the American Psychiatric Association. But there are other uh, important process addictions, too, that are very common and can be very serious, even though they're not uh, recognized as disorders yeah. by psychiatry, including shopping, television watching. That's an old one. Um, social media. Social media. There's a lot of talk about that. a huge yeah, yeah. problem sex and pornography, and also food. And food is an interesting one because mm. you would think that when you eat food, you're consuming substance, a substance, and therefore it gets classified as a substance addiction. But it tends to be classified as a process addiction uh, because it's more about, I guess, the activity 
and the pleasure that's associated with the activity than it is about the substance. Anyway, that's uh, kind of a, you know, a technical debate that's a little bit beside the point of many people's interests, I think. But I thought I'd mention that. I yeah, it's a, I think it's important to clarify that because how do we know when something crosses over into an addiction versus just something that we do for pleasure? Well, the American Psychiatric Association and allied bodies like the psychology and social work professions, they tend to classify something as a disorder, a, a addiction that is sufficient to be spoken of as a disorder for which you need to seek help if it causes significant distress and if you no longer are able to exercise control over the behaviors that it leads to despite adverse consequences. And it starts so, to affect your life and starts yeah. to become unmanageable. Right, okay. right. But really there isn't a hard and fast line to be drawn between an addictive enslavement and a non-addictive enslavement. You can be enslaved and have your life kind of be less than its fullest by being addicted to all kinds of things that don't necessarily ruin your life. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I am addicted to caffeine <laughs> and lots of people are. How do you know you're addicted to caffeine? Um, <laughs> I know because if I wake up in the morning and I don't have access to my coffee, then I'm feeling pretty miserable and cranky before long. Do you get Until, headaches? Yes, I would get headaches. Okay. There are real physical withdrawals. Yeah, symptoms. I know. I'm only asking because when for a couple of days we didn't have coffee <laughs> and I started drinking green tea without caffeine and I thought it had caffeine, but it didn't. Yeah. And, and I didn't get a headache. And all, all of a sudden I realized I had gone a couple of days. So I'm like, I'm I feel like I'm pretty good with that. Oh. <laughs> I was pretty happy about that because I thought same thing. Because mm -hmm. my husband and I get up every day and have coffee. <laughs> yeah. So um, now I'm a coffee addict. Okay. But I wouldn't say that my addiction to coffee is ruining my life right. or bringing in its train a whole set of severe consequences. But that doesn't change the fact that it is fundamentally the same kind of dependence mm -hmm. as a, let's say, severe addiction to heroin that could lead somebody to overdose in pursuit of that high that they want. Yeah. They're, they're, those, my coffee addiction and that heroin addiction are fundamentally the same kind of thing. They're, they are uh, an enslavement of one's desire, and that enslavement of one's desire leads to a state of misery if one is deprived mm -hmm. of the object of desire. And it leads to one's life being governed to one degree or another by behaviors that seek to satisfy that desire, even if those behaviors interfere with other things that need to be done in life. Yeah, yeah. So I could be running late, for example, for, let's say, a job interview or for this podcast because I was rushed leaving the house and I didn't get to drink my coffee and I just have to stop at the 7-Eleven to get some. Oh. That would be an example of, uh, you know, uh, a minor addiction leading to an yeah. adverse consequence. Not a ruinously adverse one, but still. Right, right. 
So when it starts to affect our lives and our relationships, and that's when we really need to be aware. And, and awareness is the key, right? Well, awareness is just a start, though. Is a start. Because, uh, <laughs> that's what I said. Awareness is a start. <laughs> awareness is a key, but a key. it's not the key. Because when you, of course, it, it's uh, well known that uh, most severe addicts are in denial about their addiction. Mm. I also think that's true of most of the less severe addictions that all of us have in our daily lives. Let's call them attachments right? to distinguish them from the real uh, life-disabling ones. Uh, most people aren't really aware of their attachments, or if they are aware of them, they're not really aware of the extent to which that attachment dominates their life. A common one is money. Most people are far more attached to money in our culture mm -hmm. you know we live in an affluent culture and i think that many people who fancy themselves as having a very take it or leave it attitude towards money really don't when it comes right down to it yeah. so yeah. um and you know that can easily lead to problems too like when a parent dies and uh that attachment can come out in the form of severe uh fights with uh, siblings over inheritance. I'm just trying to give everyday examples mm -hmm. uh, to illustrate the breadth of human experience that the, the concept covers. I mean, it covers really any almost any desire that a human being has for anything is in principle uh, an addiction, or it can in principle be an addiction or uh, an attachment, i.e. An attachment. Now, you mentioned before we started this podcast that you have a little bit of a different approach than traditional counselors. And is is that, would you say this focus on detachment, learning to detach is part of your gig? Yeah. And I have to say, actually, to the it's to the credit of the helping professions mm -hmm. uh, that they are coming around to recognizing the merits of uh, that approach themselves. Um so basically, the approach uh, uh, that I have in mind is one, again, that is rooted in many classical spiritual and religious traditions, the distinction between being attached and being detached. So to be, whereas attachment means that you're enslaved to your desire, detachment means that it doesn't mean that you don't experience the desire, but it means that you have a freedom over it in experiencing it. You can sort of regard it as present in yourself. You can be feeling uh, the desire, but at the same time regard it with equanimity rather than being controlled by it and having it unsettle you and your behavior and your emotions. So that kind of spiritual detachment is one of the basic qualities that all of the serious classic religious and spiritual traditions encourage their adherents to cultivate. Yeah, Buddha, Buddha was big on that. He, yeah. I mean, he said all suffering stems from attachment. Yeah, and yeah. actually the helping professions for the past 15 or 20 years have increasingly been looking specifically to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. for inspiration and helping them to improve their own treatment models for addiction. So mindfulness, for example, right now is a very big thing 
yeah. in the secular helping professions. There are a lot of therapists and counselors out there who center their practice around helping their clients develop mindfulness. And the point of it is to um, help the clients create a, a condition in themselves where they experience a certain freedom from the turbulent things that are happening in their interior life. So maybe this is a good time to go into sex addiction, which is your specialty, one of your specialties, yes, right? Yes, right? I would say that that is my principal specialty. And so maybe just for, because we don't have like <laughs> as many hours as we need to talk about this subject, let's talk about the subject of detachment with with reference to sex addiction. And, and before we do that, go ahead and tell us what constitutes a sex addiction. Well, I think the first thing to say with regard to sex addiction in particular is to note that it actually has a lot of similarities with other addictions. It has similarities on the neurological level. It has similarities on the emotional level and also on any other level of being human that you care to mention. So, so if you have trouble understanding the concept of sex addiction, but you understand some of the other better known addictions, then you can learn a lot about what sex addiction involves just by thinking of some of the uh, key elements of addiction in general. Okay. Um, so sex addiction, like the substance addictions, for example, it causes changes, physical changes in the brain due to neuroplasticity that basically amount to a hijacking of the brain's reward system. So the brain alters in such a way that the dopamine-based reward system dominates what's going on there on a neural level, and that in turn leads to the obsession that fuels the addiction. So uh, those uh, neurological changes are very similar, whether you're talking about alcoholism on the one hand, for example, or whether you're talking about uh, sex addiction on the other. And also, uh, another interesting thing about not just sex addiction, but process addictions in general, is that if you try to break the addiction, that is, if you abstain from them for any length of time, you will experience withdrawal symptoms, pretty even, severe even withdrawal with sex symptoms. Addiction. Wow. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And the withdrawal symptoms, uh, in the case of many substances, the uh, withdrawal symptoms is initially are actually very uh, medically dangerous. They can kill you. That's not the case with, with, with sex addiction, but it is the case that it feels like you're going to die. The distress that people who suddenly stop their sex addiction cold turkey experience in the first days, weeks, months after they do so, uh, is so excruciating that it can actually feel like you're dying. So, um, and that's a function of the fact that your brain has altered in such a way that it's expecting all of this mm -hmm. stimulation and now all of a sudden it's deprived of it. And uh, so your brain lets you know that by causing you to feel 
very distressed. Yeah, there's been a lot of research into the neurotransmitters and and our, our how our brain is affected. And, and I think in a positive way, we've really realized that with abstinence, so many of these addictions can be... Um, you know, our brains can be completely back to normal with, with abstinence. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, but it takes a long time. Yeah. Uh, it's not, uh, with any serious addiction, getting back to a state resembling that of a normal, non-addicted person is not a matter of days, weeks, or months. It's a matter of years. It's a-, a good rule of thumb in that regard is that if you can manage to stay abstinent and not just stay absent, but also work on filling the void in yourself that you were formerly using the addictive activity to fill. If you can do that for five years, then then you'll be you'll you'll be able to pass for normal for the most part, uh, both in terms of the way you feel and in terms of the way other people will perceive you. So so that means that the that uh, the the brain malformations have actually reversed themselves. And that's measurable. It's measurable. Yeah, yeah. it's measurable. You, it, uh, we're talking about uh, the formation of additional dendritic branching in certain parts of the brain and the atrophying of uh, dendritic branching in other parts of the brain. Uh, and you can actually see that uh, on a uh, macroscopic level. The ridges that make up the folds and ridges that make up the surface of the brain actually physically increase and and or decrease in response to prolonged addictive behaviors. So thinking about getting to that five-year mark with Mm -hmm. a sex addiction issue, what is working now? Well, um, I've spoken so far about the things that make sex addiction similar to other addictions, but there are also things about sex addiction that are unique to it. Okay. And one thing that is uh, present to a uniquely intense degree in sex addiction is shame. Sex addiction is a very strongly shame-based and shame-oriented uh, addiction. And that is one of the things that makes it very difficult to treat and to talk about because the shame prevents people from admitting to it in the first place. And um, we as a culture are at this point not being honest about uh, the fact that uh, about the extent of the problem or even in some cases, about the very fact that it exists. Well, look at, you know, I spoke in the beginning of the podcast about they, in quotes, every other commercial during a football game is a Viagra commercial. Right. And, and the sex that's on TV and the, the just salaciousness of of our culture is, you can't is a culture it. in denial. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah. You, it's, it's very difficult to escape the sexualization that's pervasive in our culture and you are made to feel like if you're not part of that, then you're missing out. Mm-hmm. I know I myself felt like that uh, growing up in my uh, teenage years. I I was, for various reasons, not uh, participating in that kind of uh, um, adolescent sexual activity, but I was always made to feel like 
I'm left out. And I think that that's, uh, I had a professor on addictions who pointed that out to me. And I think that that's a, a very important aspect of this particular problem to recognize. People, people, uh, you know, who don't have boyfriends, who, who, who aren't having one night stands on campus or what have you. Our culture makes those people feel left out. And sex is supposed to be divine, divine. The, it's a divine interaction between two sacred spirits. I mean, it it is supposed to be. It's a gift from God, and we just don't see it that way in in our culture. And, and, yeah, no. There's yeah. this is another uh, very uh, big obstacle in dealing with this addiction, as opposed to others, is that we as a culture are very confused they. about the <laughs> they those 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 evil days <laughs> uh there's a lot of confusion about the true meaning of sexuality and um since the sexual revolution in the 1960s there's a tendency to kind of trivialize sex and just see it as one other recreational activity hmm. and that everybody is free to follow their own tastes and the way they behave in the sexual sphere of their life and that that doesn't do anybody any harm as long as everything is consensual. And I believe that that is a profoundly mistaken view and a big part of why society is having such a difficult time coming to grips with this problem, even though it's growing by the day in terms of how widespread it is, is because of that confusion. But on the other hand, it's not clear that the state of things that existed prior to the 1960s necessarily provided the right answer either. You know, Victorian denial of anything sexual whatsoever yeah. is in its own way just as unrealistic as the situation that prevails exactly. right now. So there's got to be a balance. I think it really all comes down to, this is just my opinion, and I'm nobody but a podcast host, but <laughs> it's the the balance of the divine feminine and the divine masculine coming together. I mean, I, I just feel like if we could just get that together, and, and we needed to bring the feminine up, mm -hmm. you know, during the 60s and the, you know, we needed to become, and we're still not there, but we need to be equal partners in life and in sex and in everything to be, to have a normal, happy, healthy, mentally health, healthy sexual relationship, I think. But again, I'm just a podcast. Host, well, so you no, tell I, I think that that's, <laughs> I think that that's part of it. You know, I, I certainly think that, uh, there were many things wrong with old school traditionalism, let's call it, yeah. uh, pre-1960s old school traditionalism when it came to the generally prevailing understanding of sex in our culture. And that was one of them. But uh, I think uh, another key thing to recognize is to uh, is the distinction between love and lust. Mm. Love and lust. You almost never hear the word lust spoken uh, uh, just in our general culture today. It's kind of an old school word. Well, it's a sin. <laughs> well, yeah. it's it, yeah. Uh, um, Do you remember uh, Jimmy Carter when he said, I lusted in my heart after that woman or something? Right. <laughs> it's a concept that doesn't necessarily have to be 
associated with other ideas like sin in order to be understood for what it is. The best way to understand lust, I think, is uh, in terms of it being the exact opposite in every important respect to something that our culture idealizes, namely romantic love. So both are forms of attraction and desire for another person. But in love, if it's real love, that attraction and desire is selfless. You desire that other person for their own sake. Whereas in lust, the attraction is fundamentally selfish. You desire the other person, but not because of them. You couldn't care less about their well-being. You just want to use them uh, as an object to gratify your own desires for pleasure. And uh, there are many other respects in which lust differs from love. Um, And it would take some length to uh, unpack what all those are. But there isn't even really any point in doing it unless a person admits in the first place that there is a difference between love and lust. Mm. And our culture has lost a hold of that distinction. So there were many good things about the cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s. But one of the things that was lost that I think is really uh, hurting us as a culture right now and impeding efforts to recognize and then come to grips with sex addiction is that that distinction has been lost yeah and and, you know the consequences are 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 huge you know their marriages breaking up left and right right over sex addiction and um but even though that is perhaps the single most common and or single most important cause of marital breakup you don't hear it talked about. No, no one says, yeah, no one talks about that. You're right. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the signs and signals that either we may have a sex addiction or maybe our partner might have a sex addiction. And then what do we do about it if we if we become aware of it? Because as we said, awareness is yeah. first step. Well, if you find yourself spending more time than you think is good on the Internet, looking at pornography if you find yourself doing that and hiding it from people in your life if you find yourself lying to others to cover up your sexual behaviors you know lying about that $150 mysterious charge on the credit card bill which you went to pay used to pay uh, somebody at a massage parlor to have sex with them um There are checklists out there that ask a series of questions about this as a way of testing whether you might have a problem. And those types of questionnaires, if they're good, they all come down to the same thing. Namely, is your sexual activity out of control in such a way that you do it even though you don't want to do it? And in such a way that you do it even though it causes all kinds of bad consequences. Okay, so what is working? The 12-step programs are working, Yeah, right? I, I, uh, 
it has been the case with the substance addictions, with all of the treatment regimens that uh, the helping professions have developed to help people deal with their substance addiction. It remains true as they, they, they the, the, substance, uh, the uh, uh, substance addiction professionals will reluctantly admit that nothing helps people stay sober more lively in the long run from substances uh, than regular ongoing participation in 12-step programs. Uh, and I think that that is, if anything, even more true of an addiction like this because sex addiction, it's in many ways an even more difficult and intractable addiction than the substance addiction. Well, it's so much more isolating. It's isolating, and it also, it sort of gets at your core as a human being in a personal way, in a way in which addiction to substances don't. Mm. When you're addicted to sex, then you are personally involved in the addiction in a way in which isn't the case if you're addicted to a substance or something non-sexual. It's the intimately personal nature of the desire and of the addictive behaviors that are based on the desire that I think is a source of the unusual amount of shame that yeah. surrounds this particular addiction. More, much more shame than you generally have with other addictions. Yeah, so it really requires a lot of self-compassion to, to heal from this. Do you have any examples of clients you may have worked with or, or, or couples that have come through and gotten to the other side and repaired a relationship and, and really seen... Yeah, um, there are, I, I'm familiar with a lot of stories with tragic endings, but I'm also familiar with stories that have good endings. Um, uh, a common scenario for people to, that finally take this seriously, is if their spouse discovers them cheating with another person and or looking at pornography on the internet, or people commonly also hit bottom, if you will, when they are caught using pornography at work. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> it, uh, oh, yeah, it happens a lot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of people looking at pornography at work, which is also, if, you're, if, you, are, if you are enslaved to the desire to the point where you cannot even wait until you get home, <laughs> yeah. and where you have to do it at work that should be a, a, a huge wake up call. Red, a huge red flag yeah um so it often takes hitting bottom like that which is a 12-step term to take people it often takes that for people to face up both to the fact that the problem exists and to the seriousness of it in the first place and from that point on recovery requires being honest about the problem uh, being honest about the need to get help in order to deal with the problem and the willingness to endure a pretty grueling period of early recovery where abstinence feels like it's going to kill you. And, and the 12-step model uh, of uh, peer treatment uh, remains one of the best ways there is to um, 
get that kind of help. Yeah, yeah. It feels like the 12-step model offers something that some classical counseling just doesn't. I mean, it gives you it gives you an opportunity to work on detachment and and connect with your higher power and really gain that spiritual connection that you really lost. And also yeah. to find solidarity with other human beings who are sharing in the same struggle with you. That is tremendously powerful. Yeah. It's and tremendously empowering to know that you have the support and the care care of uh, other people who are struggling with the same thing that you're struggling with, who understand exactly who you're going through, what, what you're going through. Um, it breaks through the isolation. And a lot of people feel that sex addiction is really not an addiction. I mean, Dr. Laura said it on, on her show. Just it's so funny because I hardly ever listened to her, but she happened to be on the radio and I started listening and she said, oh, sex addiction, that's a crack. Of. But a lot of people feel that sex, sex addiction is really a disease of intimacy, lack of intimacy. And in those 12 step groups, when you have that closeness, I would think that you have an opportunity to also practice intimacy with yes, others because absolutely. you're bearing your soul. Absolutely. That, that is absolutely true. So restoring that. So everything's a practice, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. Everything's a practice. That's why I love yoga because I go and I practice and it's a metaphor for the rest of my life because... Yeah. Thank you so much, Mikael. 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 <laughs> three syllables. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to shine light on this important issue. And I, I feel like this conversation could go on so long. There's so much to talk about here. And, and I hope that people will reach out to you if they have a need and would like to work with you. If somebody is interested in working with you, how would they contact you? I can be reached by either telephone or email. The telephone number is 443-986-3840. And the email is augustinlcs at gmail.com. Augustine, like St. August Augustine. Yes, so. because St. Augustine was a sex addict. So. <laughs> he was also the patron saint of beer. Did you know that? I didn't know that, no. <laughs> No. My but his mother, St. Monica, was an alcoholic. Really? Yeah. See, yeah. we all got something. Everybody's yeah. got something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. This has been very enlightening and, and interesting. And, and I just think this conversation, I hope it's healing for, for someone out there. And, and again, if you have someone in your life who may be suffering with this addiction or any addiction, please contact someone. And Michael, Michael's a good place to start. So, Yeah, thank, I also help. Uh, Mikael, with this Mi problem. Mikael yes, is yeah, a good place yeah. to start. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. What, what did you say? I, I just wanted to add, I, I help uh, individuals, mostly men who struggle with this issue, but I also work with couples whose relationship sex addiction is a major issue. Yeah. So. Thank you. Well, keep up the good work. Thank you so much.